Blood Brothers Podcast, a Five Pillars Production. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh, my dear brothers, sisters, friends, and the foes out there. Welcome to another episode of the Blood Brothers Podcast with your host, Didi Hussain. Before I introduce today's guest, I remind you all to subscribe to the Five Pillars YouTube channel. And for the avid podcast listeners, you can find the Blood Brothers podcast on all the major audio platforms. Today's guest is a dear brother of mine who I've never had the honor of meeting in person, but inshallah, I pray that uh, that reality will change in the coming months or years, inshallah. He's someone whose work I've been following attentively uh, for many years, especially as a young activist myself. Um, I used to, I remember some of the famous uh, defences of uh, God and the prophets that our dear guest did uh, in light of the Charlie Hebdo uh, caricature of the Prophet which went viral and received across platforms millions of views. He's a thinker, he's an academic, he's a writer, he's an activist, he's a public uh, speaker, someone who's uh, known in the activist scene, alhamdulillah, and it's none other than our dear brother, Dr. Uthman Badr, joining us from Sydney. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum salam, Diddy. Nice to be with you on your podcast. No, 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 it's a great honour to have you on, Uthman, but it was, it's been long in the making. Yeah, yeah, I think I missed season one. You did miss right. season one. No, 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 <laughs> it, it was always going to be a case of uh, when, not if, alhamdulillah. Uthman, but I need to uh, get a myth uh, that surrounds one of your visits to the UK uh, out of the way. I need some clarity on a matter. When was the last time you visited the UK? Well, I've only visited the UK once, so it couldn't oh, have been okay. one of my visits. There's only, okay. only once. Okay. Um, okay. Did you ever do it? Did you ever do a Q and A with some some shabab? Do you ever recall doing a Q and A with some shabab? I think so. I mean, this, did, this was this was a, maybe a decade ago now. Okay. Did did so, was was one of the questions from the audience? So this is the myth. I need to know if it happened or not. Did one of the brothers from the audience ask you about kangaroo steak? There's no way I would remember such detail. <laughs> okay. But, uh, I don't. I don't recall it. Okay. Have you ever tried kangaroo steak? I haven't myself. No. Have you ever tried kangaroo meat? No, I haven't. It's available here, and some of the shabab like it. Okay, but I haven't. I haven't had the chance to. Okay, or the inclination there was to. genuinely there was a there was a there was a, a Chinese whispers or, or a brothers whispers that took place in your visit. They said someone asked Prophet Uthman in a Q and A what kangaroo steak tasted like, and I had to when I get the opportunity, I'm going to ask you squarely if such an uh, incident happened. Um, yeah. Uthman, but before we kick off today's podcast, because there's lots to talk about, lots to go through, I tend to have a uh, warm up quick fire session with my guests uh, where I present to them very unusual and hypothetical situations. I ask them to articulate some of their points in very time constrained uh, uh, circumstances, um, and I would really like to engage you in this. Are you okay to proceed? Yeah, sure. Okay. All I ask of you is to try really understand and grasp the unique situation that I present to you and in light of that respond accordingly, inshallah. Is that okay, yeah? Yeah. So Thwan by a an alien from Mars has landed in the in, in our part of the world. Yeah, a Martian from Mars. And this Martian from Mars uh knows the English language but needs to be told very quickly and very simply certain political ideas and concepts. You don't have much time with this alien from Mars, but what you do need to do is, in this very, very limited time, explain the following. How would you explain to this being what secularism is? In the most briefest and simplest and concise way. And we can't say, just before, just before I give you a bit of time, 
sometimes I've been told Uthman by, well, Dili, you can't ask such questions uh, and expect such a quick answer. But I do believe it is from the prophetic tradition that if when the circumstance dictates and requires, you need to use simple language. So how would you explain to a Martian from Mars what secularism is? <clears throat> yeah, I think the issue is not simple language. It's just sort of time and the fact that these concepts are related to other concepts. So I can't explain secularism without explaining religion. Okay, well then... Because they're, they're twin concepts. Okay. Um, so obviously I would try and explain that there's a concept of religion, of, of God, the creator, revelation, and secularism is the, is the way of life that tries to marginalise or subordinate religion. And obviously we can use various examples of that, but that for me would be the crux of, of what secularism is. Liberalism. Um, I'll tie that to the discussion about secularism and say liberalism focuses on uh, individual atomized freedom uh, within that context of a focus on the world and a relegation of any notion of, you know, I don't want to use big words here, but transcendence or, you know, God, creation, revelation uh, in that context. So it's not just freedom, but it's freedom in that type of a concrete context. Capitalism. Uh, profits and greed. <laughs> uh, no, again, we, we, within that context of a focus on the world, a focus on worldly interests, um, capital, uh, capital. I want to say capital accumulation, but then I don't have to explain what capital is. Yeah, I mean, enterprise that focuses on profit and not just on profit, but on the constant accumulation and increase of that profit within a Again, a worldly outlook and worldview. Socialism. Um, still, I would, I would emphasize that it's still within the same type of approach, within a uh, eminent or worldly outlook, but more collectivist. Um, so here we could go back and emphasize the difference between individual and atomist approaches and collective social approaches um yeah again i guess what i'm struggling with is because there's so many other it's there where there there is a web of concepts and practices you 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 did very well with capitalism you managed to yeah i guess i mean socialism is collectivist it's again i would talk about the economic system if we were talking about the economic system then i would say um Government run, government controlled. But socialism is also a broader. I guess when you asked capitalism, I thought economics, because we already defined the broader terms. Sure. Secular, liberal. But socialism, I'm thinking my first um, reaction was broad. It wasn't the economics. And so that makes it a little bit harder. But yeah, collectivist. um, That's yeah, I'm, I'm struggling with that one. Fair enough. Islamism. It's simple. Islamism. Okay, so now, <coughs> I guess we've t- talked about secularism and religion. We'd have to say that this is a sort of opposing um, pushback against those eminent worldly outlooks to try and give expression to a religious and particularly to the Islamic outlook in the world, in the public sphere, in politics and society. Democracy. 
people sovereignty, popular sovereignty. Uh, again, however, emphasizing within that uh, worldly outlook and one that uh, relegates religion, puts, puts, I mean, populist, okay, this is easier. Popular sovereignty as opposed to divine sovereignty. I'm just saying that because if I say popular sovereignty, it's like, what's wrong with that? Right? But, but I think we have to emphasize the concreteness, the historical um, advent and, you know, the accent of democracy, which is to say human freedom and human sovereignty as against all these others, particularly religion and, and God. Okay. Uh, nation state. Uh, the nation state, again, within that sort of secular and circular and liberal outlook of the world, is an, is is an organizing entity. It seeks to organize humanity. We have to, you know, you organize, categorize people in different ways. It seeks to organize humans territorially and eth- territorially and I guess ethnically, uh, which is, you know, although which and it, and it claims to do that scientifically, but you can't really do that. So yeah, I, you know the nation, the state is meant to be sovereign, and the nation is meant to be a way to classify humanity. Empire. Empire. I'd have to emphasize that it's an older categorization, pre-modern. Uh, but yeah, with the nation state, we could contrast. So it's not so much tied to territory. It's not tied so much to ethnicity or, or nation in the modern sense. Um, it's more open. It's there's concepts of conquest and expansion, um, but also depending on which type of empire, um, exploitation, uh, you know, sort of conflict based on how we might benefit our own uh, extension of power as against others. Just an interjection there. It's interesting that you you mentioned uh, stories of conquest uh, with empire. Is this something well, you you didn't necessarily say that with nation state? Yeah, because so you're, that's a good point. I mean, the nation state tries to the nation state tries to also expand and influence, but in a different way. It's not conquest. That's not. I guess that's emphasizing the territoriality of the nation state. So in theory, at least, its borders are fixed. Whereas sure. the empire is the opposite, and so conquest becomes a much more explicit feature of empire. Spot on. And it's interesting, you know, when you said that obviously empire is a pre-modern construct, do you ever, this is just a, a side point, which we can perhaps pick up on later on in the conversation. Do you ever think that from a pre-modern empire, which is generally where a time period when it manifested, do you think such a polity that we understand historically to be empire, do you think it can resurface in the modern time? Yeah, I think it can, but, but normally history doesn't turn backwards. Um, you might get something similar, but with its, uh, in, in a developed form, in a okay. form that is, is, has gone through certain developments and uh, takes on certain changes. Right? Okay. But yeah, I don't see why we could not um, move beyond go post-nation state. Cool. Republic. Um, again, for me, the Republic is popular sovereignty as against 
divine sovereignty and um, you know some sort of religiously informed way of living but what else how would it be different to democracy i mean the, the republicanism is 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 a used concept on various various ways so that's going to be a tough one but yeah basically i would tie it to this notion of popular a pop all popular way of organizing society as against um theological ways of of doing so last and it's an, i would consider this to be an underarm to you caliphate um <clears throat> a way a polity based on organizing society uh on the basis of islam so obviously religion but more particularly islam wicked how did you find yeah, it did you find did you find I that feel, i feel i feel for the alien because i think he's he hasn't come out <laughs> any wiser no, no, no there's 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 an assumption that the alien already knows some of the things you just had to okay. help him out well yeah. we're already assuming the gender of the alien oh yeah, that's yeah. a problem in and of itself that was the first part of the quick fire we got the second part of the quick fire one by yeah so imagine this is a, this is one that a lot of guests have had uh, and it's my imaginary boat ride you're going on a boat ride for 7 days and you're allowed to take 10 companions from the past and present tell me who you would choose from the following you ready okay abdul hamid the second rahimahullah or sultan aurangzeb aurangzeb tipu sultan or umar mukhtar umar mukhtar hasan al banna or abu al mawdudi al banna shah taqiyud al nabhani or dr israr ahmed Nabani. Hamza Yusuf or Abdul Hakim Murad? Abdul Hakim Murad. Imran Khan or Erdogan with an interpreter? Erdogan. Hamza Zoltsis or Abdul Andalusi? Zoltsis. That's Shah not fair. You're going to get me in trouble with these present ones. <laughs> <laughs> so this is for the first boat ride. If there's another boat ride, then I did the other boat. Sheikh Shadi Al-Suleiman or Sheikh Mohammed Hablus? Uh, Hablus is a close friend. Okay, Hablus is done but that, then. But that means, no, but that means I haven't had less time with more intimate conversation with Sheikh Shadi, so I have to take him on the ride. Okay, and last but not least, our dear brothers Faraz Nomani or Hamza Qureshi? Hamza. Hamza, now, yeah? Only because Faraz, I was with Faraz two nights ago. So Faraz is going to understand. <laughs> Alhamdulillah. Uthman Bhai, for that. Uh, I felt that was uh, an appropriate uh, kickoff to the many things we're going to be discussing, inshallah. I'm sorry if I put you in any inshallah. awkward time-constrained situations. I think you've done a smashing job, alhamdulillah. Some of the, some of the guests have struggled with uh, boat rides and who they take on as guests. I think you were quite clinical and quite right. uh, firm on who you were going to take. Uthman Bhai, let me uh, kick off today's podcast with um, your PhD. right and your current research on secularism um of all the various subject matters from your years in academia and activism what led you towards that specific uh research uh topic yeah look i actually started out when i was doing a masters first thinking about uh, doing research on the on the on the topic of sovereignty okay um uh and that was part of through discussions with my supervisor and whatnot but long story short I found even that was leading to sort of comparisons with Islamic concepts and 
And because I was trying to come up with a topic where you can really get to the crux of some of the uh, differences in, you know, modern modern ways of living and and sort of Islamic alternatives, if you will, I, I, I couldn't go past secularism. Secularism for me seemed to be really at the crux of, of, the, of the difference um, because it, it, it defines modernity's relationship with religion. Um, and I find that, as, I, as you probably picked up with my, in my conversation with the alien, <laughs> um, I was returning to emphasize the secularity of okay. all the other concepts because I find that I, the rest of them even don't make that much sense unless you emphasize that this is part of a anthropocentric turn, the turn to the human away from I be- God. I beg, you tell us, world. I, I, I beg you tell us what that very long word mean. So anthropo-human, Greek, yeah. Greek term human-centric, human-centric. Okay. Right. So, cool. so the idea that it's about the human, humanism. Humanism has had various forms, you know, Renaissance humanism, and then later on modern humanism. But the basic concept is it's about emphasizing and centering the human being. But okay. always these happen historically as against centering Allah, subhanahu wa ta'ala, uh, religion, some authority, etc., collectivity. So, uh, so that's why I find secularism, really, I think secularism is the single most um, central idea uh, to modernity. Do you think... Obviously, co- not without the others. The others, liberalism, capitalism, are all significantly important. But I find this is this is one of the most important ones. That's why I th- I felt to focus obviously, on it. Obviously, you you felt the need to obviously highlight that the reason why in your conversation with the alien that you had to focus on the secularity of the ideas I was asking you about. Um, and obviously, when you position it against uh, a system or a polity or an ideology or a worldview, whatever choice of words we we we, we use, um, it seems that you seem quite sure at least uh, some listeners and viewers may think, that there isn't a possibility in any meaningful way, meaningful way of the coexistence of secularism and how it manifests in very different ways and perhaps a God-centric uh, system or worldview. Do you think that they cannot coexist? Yeah, I think they can't really coexist unless we redefine the terms very significantly. Mm. Um, now, but, but, but we've got to be careful. So obviously this is sort of now getting into my research and, and, and some of the conclusions that I'm coming to, what you find um, is already, there's, a, there's a, a brief context here. Secularism obviously has been not only central to modern uh, life and modern knowledge and the academy, it's also been constitutive, constitutive and a, a key in establishing uh, modern sciences, sociology, anthropology, all of these things, all of these uh, modern it's knowledges. Uthman Bhai, if I was to give you a nursery school version of how secularism emerged or how it's widely understood, at least in, on, on an academic level, would it be correct to say that there was a movement or an awakening within Christian Europe about some of the very oppressive uh, aspects of uh, the, the papal, uh, of the Vatican, the, the Pope, the, the Roman Catholic uh, uh, system, and one of the kind of uh, intellectual comebacks of that was to lessen or, 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 or remove the power of religion because essentially it was seen as something oppressive holding human intellect and advancement back in Europe. Is that a, is that a fair enough 
caricaturish nursery version of how secularism emerged, at least in the way we understand it today? That's one of the stories that is told um, in the academy and outside to describe the genealogy of secularism or the, the advent, how it comes about. So why does Christ- um, so, so how is Christianity able to survive uh, with such uh, with the emergence of this worldview of the separation of the church and the state sovereignty more human centric we're talking very general terms here broad brush terms we're using because from yeah. I don't need to be told these things I know you guys academics there's huge depth ocean level depths on on, mm-hmm. on on understanding certain semantics and and technicalities mm. and the differences that exist but in terms of broad brush uh, terms why is it that Christianity was able to survive and appears to at least survive in a very nominal way uh, but Islam can't survive in that way yeah well it, well it can survive in that way that's the key sort of qualification and I think you, you sort of indicated there when you said you know it survived in a nominal way so basically mm. Christianity has had to um, have a makeover mm. right um, and and to secularize. And that's what I was. That's what I, was, what I was getting to when I said that um, in the previous discussion that about coexistence or otherwise um, secularism. One of the ways in which it has been understood, uh, Charles Taylor, for example, with Secular Age was, was influential work, is that it's not the negation of religion, and but rather it's the transformation. Of religion, and in fact, even the proliferation of new forms of religion, right? So one way of looking at secularism is to say it's not at odds with religion, right? It just means that we do religion differently, right? But now that now that but how you assess that comes from your perspective. So if so if you ask someone like me, I'm like, well, you know, yeah, religion can undergo certain changes, but some things are essential. Like? If you change some, like? some, well, for example, the fact that. It should have a public expression. It should have. Um, it should be in the defining seat. Okay. Right. Uh, Uthman, but how would you then counter to those who would say, "Well, look, uh, in secular states, um, the public expression of religion is there. You have your mosques. You're able to pray. You're able to give your religious alms, and you're able to worship in your places. Um, in many Western European secular nation states, you're even allowed to have these things called dawah stalls, where you're allowed to proliferate uh, and proselytize your faith." Yeah, well, yeah, well, yeah that, that's there, but that's there within a system or a context in which the secular authorities will define what sort of expression you can and cannot do. Okay. That will Are define you do- your place. So that's why I, the second thing I said after public expression, public expression is more and more being sort of accepted to a certain degree, depending on where we're talking about. But what's critical and essential to secularism is that it defines what religion is, Okay. What its place is, okay. what its boundaries are, where it's allowed or not, and what and I'm ex- suggesting, it, and and what I'm suggesting is that religion. Okay, cool. What, I'm, ex- what I'm suggesting is that for, for religion, it should be the opposite. And you're saying right? that the ex- and you're saying the expressions would exist in that. Little yeah, within those boundaries. Okay. Within those coordinates. How so, so during your research, uh, during your PhD research, obviously there's one thing theorizing what we may have been learned. Uh, from our scholars, our teachers, perhaps some of the Islamic groups of movements that we were part of or were influenced by. But obviously, research on this level requires, uh, you know, quantifiable and real-life examples. 
how successful do you think secularism has been in the Muslim majority world over the last century, let's say? Secular, uh, you mean successful on its own terms in trying to achieve what it seeks to achieve? Yeah, successful in terms of its manifestation, the way that states are run with this mindset, how successful are they, their longevity, um, the way they're functioning, the way they're managing uh, things which are essential to all societies, whether it be economics mm-hmm. or employment, how, how successful do you think secularism has been? From what, because there's one thing to say, Usman Bai, that look, Christianity's had to transform, it's had to have a makeover. Um, and, and then to even not allude, not that you have alluded to it by the way, but there is an assumption there that Islam hasn't had a makeover, or else that it wasn't so willing, or the Muslim majority world, or Islamic civilization, whatever terminology you want to use, hasn't been so easy to have that makeover. In that case, and then I'll posit to you how successful, from, from the research that you've carried out, how successful do you think secularism has been in the Muslim world? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a few aspects to this. It's a good question. Um, we can look at it two ways. If you look at secularism as an instrument of empire, empire in a different sense here now, modern sort of proliferation of secular liberal power, it has been successful. It has been, it has been quite successful in the Muslim world. Uh, but that doesn't mean that Islam or the Muslim world has been amenable and very easy sort of turning over backwards and being tickled. Um it's been difficult. It's been far more difficult than it has been with Christianity. Um, actually, it was actually quite difficult with Christianity as well. Let me rephrase that. I just Christ- wanted to say that as well because Europe, there, was resist- Europe, there was resistance. Europe and Christianity have had, a lo- have had a much longer period to do so. And they eventually sort of gave in. Islam hasn't fully given in. But the, a lot of the changes in the Muslim world have been forced. Right? Okay. And so it's, it's really in the Muslim world, it's, it's, it's a live struggle still. Where... On the one hand, Muslims are not voluntarily um, accepting of the makeover, but secularism has been forced on their on their throats, um, which means, therefore, it's it's not the same type of secularism, if you will, in the same form as in the West, mm. where it's much more sort of organic and accepted and and the rest of it. Would you say the ontology and the and the and the, and the fundamental basis of secularism? Uh, is distinctly European uh, with Christian roots, or would you say that there's other cases of uh, human civilizations have implemented uh, similar systems where, fine, there's been false deities of the past, sure, uh, one, many, and, and different things that have been worshipped in the past, but they're governed according to their ideas of whatever they took as a deity, right? Whether it's the Aztecs or whether it be the, the ancient Greeks, whatever, maybe they had concepts of gods and they had these types of laws and values that were centered around these false gods. But secularism, would you say, is distinctly European and something, its roots is somewhere within Christian Europe? Or would you say that other civilizations of the past have had their versions of this? Uh, no, I think it's, it's distinctly European. Um, we could understand it in some of the, in the terms that you were pointing towards about people sort of doing their own thing. But that, that for me is far too broad. I think it's important to pay attention to the historical particularities okay. of any phenomenon. And, and, and therefore secularism as we understand it today uh, is very much a European phenomenon. It's a very um, originally Christian, uh, not, maybe not Christian, but it arises in a European Christian context, um, even though now in its advent, there's a debate. So the other story, not that it's a Christian, just a development, is that it's a break. 
So there's two understandings of the genealogy of secularism. Is it, is it a continuation of Christianity by other means or is it a break from Christianity? In either case, it arises in a very European and Christian context. So where would you sit in those two camps? Do you think it's a continuation of Christianity? I think it's a break. I, I, at least I incline more to that view, okay. but there are strong ideas on both sides. One chapter of my uh, PhD dissertation is on this issue of, um, or one large section on the genealogies of secularism, mm. uh, in which I try to outline all the various views and then make an argument, but I do incline to the view that it's more of a, a break than a continuation. Okay, before I move on to uh, the next topic that I wanted to talk about, which was basically the Omatics Colloquium project, which you recently announced on Facebook, before I get into uh, the, the, the whatabouts of, of this very interesting and, and exciting project, is, bro, you're an academic, and or at least you're on that path, and you've also got a path which was very much public and known uh, towards Islamic activism and, 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 and talking about domestic and, and, and international current affairs relating to Islam or Muslims and so forth. What are those, Do you understand the real-life struggles? Have you ever experienced real-life struggles as a Muslim academic who's trying to work or, or trying to pave an academic path within an Islamic framework, trying to understand these things in the backlog of Real life situations, real life manifestations, real life consequences. Have you struggled to pursue this path, especially on the subject matters that you have, whilst trying to fit it all in within an Islamic framework or paradigm? Uh, not really. Nothing significant, I would say. Um, but it's also because I'm not. I'm not trying to fit it within an Islamic framework uh, or anything like that. Okay, not I'm fit. Just... Try, trying to make sense of it, then perhaps. Not really even that. I'm just I'm researching a particular area. Um, Has it not? Have, have you never ever been in a? Have you never experienced whilst researching and reading more and looking deeper into secularism that that's ever put you in a problematic position towards certain Islamic positions? Have you ever been in that situation? I mean, by reading a book or something like yeah, if, no, no, like, 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 like for example, I don't want to name any names, but we know a very prominent. Muslim scholars who have who have pursued uh, Western secular academia and they've been very challenged. The the the, the further they oh, go, being you mean like sort of challenging your ideas? Yeah, yeah. 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 Ha having your ideas challenged, no, having not to question with the not with not with secularism, but obviously my um uh, my initial degree and my area is philosophy. Yeah, so, so right. philosophy. We, we, yeah. we know of certain Duato study philosophy, and, they, and, and, it, and it's made them question some very fundamental things about their own creedal positions. As have you yeah, ever experienced look, that? To, when, I, when I first moved to philosophy some, I don't know, six years ago, uh, in the Masters, when I was doing, because well, do, we don't just do politics, we do epistemology, ontology, sure. various. Uh, there were certain points where I think I would say, I'm not sort of challenged. Is challenges might be too strong a word, but there were questions that I found confronting. Okay, maybe that's too strong either. Like raising questions that would raise questions. Okay, right, and for which at the time I didn't have, uh, you know, ready-made answers. So yeah, definitely there was a period. Um, but what I found was uh, that, that happens in the earlier stages. The more you go into it, into the philosophy itself. Yeah. Um, I found that my convictions and uh, positions in Islam actually became stronger. 
Alhamdulillah, may long um, that continue for you and all the Muslims, bro. I mean, I mean, I mean, I mean um, and, and that's because I think with any subject, it takes time to actually grasp what it is mm. and to understand it properly um, and to be able to see where it's weak. Okay. Right? So anyway, that that's just my experience. It probably doesn't mean much, but okay. since and you I, asked. Then of course, and, and obviously whilst in your your journey in, in academia, which is still ongoing and so forth, you know when you pass by ideas such as decolonial studies or critical race, mm. uh, different ways to understand real life problems, real life uh, situations that we're seeing unfold before our eyes. Um, have you ever looked into these ideas, whether it's decolonial studies or critical race theory, and have you ever looked at these very what appears to be very popular ideas in recent years in understanding things like racism, institutional racism and so forth in the West, whilst you're studying secularism and trying to not necessarily compare it, but trying to obviously give your followers on social media and those who are in contact with you an understanding of it from an Islamic standpoint, at least, right? Um, have you ever looked at decolonial studies, critical race theory and other things that Muslims are also discussing and understood it from what you're uh, studying as part of your PhD research? No, not as part of the research. I mean, there's been relevant material that comes up because a lot of the research is interdisciplinary and it goes across borders and various thinkers and authors. Um, but I have, uh, on my own accord, uh, before and after and during the research, looked into some of those areas, not all of them, but that also means that it hasn't. I haven't been able to do that at the same depth because with the PhD, I, I have to do it at a certain depth to achieve certain, you know, write, write a dissertation, mm. a quality dissertation. Um, but yeah, I haven't, so I've looked, I haven't, I haven't yet had the chance to really delve as deeply as I would like into decolonial um, well, theories and decolonial. CRT, I have looked at a bit more. Mm. Again, not as much as I would like, but I have, I do have sufficient exposure to CRT. Uh, to, to feminism to, to a certain extent To issues around racism Do you feel, um, the, do you feel the aforementioned Particularly CRT I'm possibly, I guess you can put feminism in there But mainly CRT Do you think they have an important role For Muslims in the West To at least understand some of the issues Pertaining to racism On a more systemic point of view Yeah, do you think? I think that Yeah, I think, that, I think they're, they're helpful In um, Facilitating an understanding of the modern world and how, in the case of racism, how it, how it actually operates, as opposed to sort of standard, uh, taken for granted understandings that are much more atomistic or individual. Can it get to a point where it becomes unhelpful and it may need calling out or addressing critical race theory specifically? Well, yeah, in theory, it can. Um, I guess, I guess it, it can when because. It comes as, all these things come as a package. Okay. Right? Um, and although they may have insights, they also have issues where they, there's a conflict with mm. you know, Islamic positions. And so that's why it's always important to critically engage, not to, not to reject out of hand, but also mm. not to lap them up, to critically engage. And if you don't do that, then, yeah, there are dangers as well. 
Of course, I mean, there'll be some of our listeners and viewers thinking, uh, why has Dillian Uthman decided to go down this digression? It, obviously, those who don't know, there was obviously some very heated conversations, not recently, but in the past, uh, against what's perceived to be, what's perceived, or at least been presented to be traditional normative Islam, pitched against some kind of woke understanding of race under the CRT umbrella. And some of these conversations have been very toxic, very polarised. Um, and of course, uh, some of the contributors in this conversation happening online were from Australia. Uh, we had uh, a brother, uh, you know, a brother, Dr. Yasser Morsi, a brother whom we both mutually know. Uh, we had others contributing to that conversation. We had Rav Abdullah Andalusi and, and 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 all their followers and supporters and everything in between about this this conversation. Mm-hmm. So I just wanted to just touch upon it and and and, and understand that whilst it, you said it's helpful to understand uh, a more deeper understanding of of perhaps what we see or understand to be racism. <coughs> I, I guess one of the most Essential issues was that up until what point does it become unhelpful or un-Islamic or, or, or can we carry on taking aspects of CRT to make sense of modern manifestations of systemic racism? Or is it something that should be left alone in its complete, in its entirety? No, no, we shouldn't. I don't think it's the, the right epistemic attitude Islamically to reject uh, things out of hand. It's about critical engagement. That's why you, you couldn't put a a line, you can't say, well, up to this point you take it and then up to that point you couldn't take it. It's about critical engagement. We can define further that critical engagement to say that generally speaking, uh, descriptive, empirical uh, aspects are where we'll we'll be able to take more, Mm. whereas normative aspects are going to be more difficult because we've got our own moral foundations. Having said that, this is part of the difficulty it's, it's not easy to separate the empirical from the normative. It's not easy to separate the descriptive from the prescriptive. Mm. Um, but, yeah, that's why it's really about qualitative critical engagement. You can't put a line somewhere. Um, and, but I, fi- I find in, the, in the, the debates that you were alluding to, um, I find that there's a lot of un- uninformed uh, interventions that, that, that are problematic. So would you um, say so? Is this when you, what you're referring to as perhaps unqualitative conversations? Is that what you're? Not necessarily. Un, well, the, yeah, un, uh, in terms of the quality is low. Yeah, in that <laughs> sense, but that's not what I meant by qualitative. Um, yeah, I think. So, uh, look, I think a lot of brothers. You're part, are very, you, you, you were part of some of these conversations. Yes, I'm not country. saying all of it. I'm not saying. I'm not saying the whole conversation was. You brought a lot of quality there. to some of these conversations. I added the quality parts to it, and others were stuffed along. No, no. I, I, look, everyone, everyone participating in it is sincere, mm. and I can understand where people are coming from. Um, there is a struggle. There is a strong struggle around Islamic values, Islamic ideas, and the push against it, and the rest of it. But I just feel that sometimes some of the brothers are um, sort of inclined to. Be, be reactionary. Okay. Right? So there's a danger, there's this about Islam, and then we let's reject that and reject this and this and that. And that's not a healthy approach. But you how have do you, to... Okay, yeah. no, 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 granted. And then Jazakallah khair, you're very much, you're very right there, bro. But what, you know when it comes to issues like concepts of justice and injustice, how mm-hmm. one defines their identity, how one, how one understands race in the context of power and justice and oppression, these are very important things. These are things which can and have and will influence Muslim activism, especially in the West. So, 
given the, the specific particularity of the CRT, which I've chosen as a digression to talk about before we move on mm. to the the Umatic Colloquium, is that wouldn't uh, surely it will come a point when we try to understand what is justice, what is social justice, how do we define identity, how do we define oppression, how do we, you know, how how, how do we measure these things from this very uh, very uh, think about cr- critical race theory. I, I, this is an open admission. I've never said this on camera ever before. When I first came across uh, some of the brothers and, and even sisters and Muslims and non-Muslims who who wrote about this and discussed this, it seemed at first hand to make a lot of sense with one, and it still does. Aspects of it still does make sense, and I can definitely see where it applies in real life situations, especially in North America and the US. I guess the issue lies or can arise is when it comes to or when it seeks to define or categorize certain groups of people, lump them as discriminated minorities or whatever you want to understand from intersectionality, whatever it may be. Th- those where some of the problems lie. How do you define what is just and, and, and unjust? How, how do you, and, mm. and those things influence Muslim activism. So it is an important conversation. It's one that happens that nearly always kicks off whenever there's a race issue. And, the, and before you know it, Muslim Twitter's uh, conversation is about CRT and Black Lives Matter and all these kind of things. So are you saying, how open should we be to taking from not just CRT, but any other theory or idea that helps us make sense of the modern world that we live in? So we should be as open as we need to be. We should be open. Um, uh, again, but the point is, we should, we should be cause, okay. Because if you're not open, you're not going to take anything, right? You open because there might be something of value. But, but why would the way, why, the way, why would why would we take something? Uh, I, I I'm playing advocate here. Yeah, yeah. I'm from the other side. Why would playing I take the devil's, yeah, devil's yeah. avocado? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why would I take from something which I know epistemologically from a foundational basis is problematic? Well, why should I need to take anything from anywhere if Islam is sufficient yeah, for because, me? It's, because it's, a compre- it's a comprehensive worldview that tells me everything from how to pay my taxes to washing my backside. Why do I need to take from these other ideas and these other worldviews? Well, because uh, it, Islam tells us everything from a normative perspective, how to live in the world. It doesn't tell us everything about about the world, about how the world operates. Right, so... You can't explain to me what liberalism is or give me a detailed understanding of modern capitalism from the Quran and Sunnah, can you? You so, can't? No. Yeah, so, so, so this is the point. Uh, you need to be open on certain aspects, right? And this, what I'm hearing from you is, uh, again, I said before, normative, descriptive, you, 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 you sort of problematize CRT because of questions of justice, Right, so again, but we didn't make that. We need to make those distinctions. I would say CRT in origin does not try to define justice. That's not its role, but it presupposes, it presupposes a view of justice, and it's a yes. secular view of justice. Yes. Right. Sorry, you you, um, you 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 articulated what I was trying to say. Yes, that's exactly. Yeah, what I was yeah, trying and, to and and now, but what that indicates, what that indicates, is that, and this this, this should also be understood. Any particular science, any particular analytical tool, ideology, whatever you want to call it doesn't stand on its own, doesn't exist in a vacuum. Again, there's a web of other concepts, sciences, worldviews, right? They've influenced it, they have shaped it. That That's have, right, that are part that of developed it, it. That, are part that it of takes it, yes. its presuppositions from. Yep. Yep. Um, having, having said that, again, you can't, you can't reject everything outright, 
And actually, we don't we don't do that. This is why, in one of the few uh, posts that I have made on CRT, I made a, you might remember this was two or three years ago, I made a comparison. I said, well, rejecting CRT out of hand is like rejecting biology out of hand. Mm. On the basis, as you, being the devil's advocate, uh, said, well, I can say, well, biology is a modern natural science. It's secular. It's, it's based on methodological naturalism. One of its major paradigms is evolution. Mm. And if we take... And I know there's various ways to reconcile evolution with Islam these days, but uh, if we take evolution as the biologists take it, that's not Islamic. And that's a, that's a fundamental paradigm in biology. And from an usul perspective, it's problematic. So I, don't, I reject it out of hand. But no one does that. We don't. No one does that, right? And that's, in a sense, that's an extreme example because I'm taking natural science. But, but, one would, but, but, but one would say that to take the biolog- biology the way you've explained it, has real life benefits. It has life saving benefits, Uthman Bai. What does CRT yeah. offer as an analytical tool in science in terms of saving lives and, and helping the human advancement? Whereas biology can, you can literally, I can reel off examples to you how it has real life benefits. Yeah, uh, yeah. But, but at, the, at, the, at the risk of sounding like Richard Dawkins, mm-hmm. you don't want to go too far with that. <laughs> it's about benefits, right? It's not about some particular benefit that I have to show elsewhere. Mm. Obviously, biology is, is, biology is a study of living beings, so it's going to have more relevance to saving lives than other things. But it's about benefit. It's about your valid question there would be, what's the benefit? Mm. And the benefit would be in an in, empirical description of some aspect of the world that we need to understand, whether it be natural or social, right? So we accept the, we accept the natural sciences um, because they have some empirical benefit in description, even though they are tied they also tie to normative worldviews, mm. right? I mean, I mean, not only are they tied to normative worldviews, science has almost been deified in the modern world. Yeah, that's how, and that's a very normative thing, right? But if you take a step forward, and these things are all from 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 European secular context, natural sciences, social sciences. Sure, it's it's not a big move from the natural to the social sciences, except that there are differences. Yes, there are. It's not exactly the same thing, but the principle. Is still there. There's an attempt to describe, but there are also normative either presuppositions or actual uh, um, assertions that you have to look at as well. Okay. A um, couple of days ago, Alhamdulillah, you announced uh, the formation uh, of a project <coughs> called Ummatic Colloquium. Um, you mentioned uh, uh, some guests that we've had previously on the Blood Brothers podcast, namely Dr. Wayma Ranjam, uh, and others will be involved uh, in this project. Uh, what, what, are the, what are the aims and objectives? Uh, who's funding you? What are the deliverables? Tell me a bit about what's going on there. Right, I mean, the Omatics project is basically, how can I describe it? Um, it's an attempt to uh, contribute to addressing the issues we face as an ummah uh, in our current time, in the late modern world, in the Western world, in the Muslim world, um, and I guess it's and therefore and therefore it's an it's an attempt, a contribution to the dawah space, to the revival space, if you want to look at it in those terms, um, and it's an attempt by those who are involved <coughs> to do it to do that um, in a way that we would argue. Uh, builds on previous attempts and the good that previous attempts did, but also tries to improve on some of some of the failings. It's interesting. Uh, you, it's interesting. Use the term the revival space. Uh, it has has what is it that you think has declined that requires reviving? 
the Ummah, Islam, the Deen. <laughs> it's it's twenty twenty one. Been a hundred okay. years since we lost the. So yeah, well, lost, revival lost, as in lost, lost the what? The Khilafah, the Caliphate, okay. Islam so, as a as so, way of life. So so just on that notion, just on the, on on that particular notion, and 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 you've linked that to revival. Mm-hmm. Now, is that a position that you still hold that the revival of the Deen? From a from a worldly manifest point of view, is is the caliphate or, or yeah, the, definitely or of course the caliphate is part of that. It's okay, a key, so it's a central part of that. Sure, and, be, and before we go into how Umatic's project will contribute towards that, I have to ask you because your background from previous years and association and affiliation uh, as a member of Hizb Tahrir, that organization has very distinct ways of defining. Uh, what the caliphate was, what it what it should be, inshallah, when it uh, is reestablished, it has very specific uh, methodology in, in how it seeks to see its reestablishment. Um, and this was an organisation that you parted from amicably uh, in two thousand and nineteen. You announced it on a Facebook post, but nevertheless, you still link revival to caliphate, as does. Uh, do they link the revival of the Deen of Islam and the Ummah in in in, the, in terms of having the reestablishment of the Khilafah? How how much so does the Hizb still influence your ideas? Um, I think significantly, I would, I would think so. And as I said at the time when I <clears throat> sort of announced um, that I'm moving on. I said at the time as well, I'm not. This is not a sort of uh, rejection of the overall project. It's rather moving on based on some of the specifics about how it was being carried out. Okay. Uh, so sort of modes modes of operation and some other particulars. Since then, obviously, further study, further thinking, further discussions. Um, I've probably um, come to see other things that I wasn't seeing at the time, but still, broadly, I would say that. For want of a better term, you know, I'm still working within that broadly Islamist, quote-unquote, project. Um, but really, the devil's in the detail, if you will. It's about the particulars, right? It's about... Um, and, the, and that's why, as I said, the attempt is to try and build on the strengths, not just of HT, broadly speaking. There's other various other movements, Ikhwan, Jamaatis, Tanzimis, sure. etc. Um, but also to try and... Where we don't see eye to eye... To try and contribute and do something in the way that we think is is better. So let me respectfully ask you: How do you now then reconcile um, the ideas that you were taught, that you had conviction in, that you proselytized and and and, and gave dawah to to the ummah? Um, how do you reconcile and how do you, uh, I guess, understand that w- w- there was very specific approaches to democracy as a system of governance? There were very specific definitions of capitalism. There's very there's very specific definitions of things which your work is still continuing into the umatic projects, right? So mm. how do you reconcile, uh, I guess, working with uh, other du'at and academics and thinkers who come from positions where, let's be frank about it, you we would have had a far more. I don't like to word like to use the word rigid, but we had a far more. 
clear position on certain things where one would stand uh, perhaps on a more of a pragmatic gradualist approach to implement aspects of Islam with the hope of uh, implementing in a more meaningful and holistic way whether it be to raise arms and fight the state to attain power whether it be mm. whatever these ideas are mm. yeah how do you reconcile now or how or are you still reconciling and is it a challenge that you face when you have to work with other art and academics that come from different persuasions that may not have the understanding of the caliphate that you once did or you still do or have uh, a, a, an idea or how they feel that muslim political unification would would, would manifest in the modern modern world uh, whether it be in a very uh, federate european union style or do you understand what I'm trying to say with Mumbai? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, well, look, I mean, it's, it's, it's case by case or it's specific. Some things haven't changed, right? So, Khilaf has Fardi, I believe Khilaf has Fard. Voting Haram? Voting... Yes, uh, if, if you've conveyed the position of those who believe it to be Haram from, you know, giving... Uh, power authority for someone to legislate on your heart... Yeah, I still believe... I, I, haven't, I haven't come to revisit that issue, to be honest. I, I still... Believe I still adopt that it's it's haram. Gen- uh, a legitimate jihad. Yeah, where I, where I would have where I uh, where I find myself more uh, sort of moving on or uh, um, is is in is is in how you look at the opposing jihad, right? Okay. So I found that perhaps some of the ways of looking at the op- opposing jihad that was a bit narrow. Okay. Likewise, and you asked this in your question. Likewise, um, uh, how you generally how you how you address and how you deal with and work with the ummah. Okay. I think there needs to be greater openness. Okay. And greater, I think, not again, not just I don't want to focus on any one group. Broadly, I think so, I think you find a lot of these movements started at similar times and have been sure. running have have certain similar mm. modes of operation. Uthman, but look, uh, I, I guess I'm trying to say is this right. If for 10, 15 years you've been part of a, an Islamic group, right? It doesn't matter. I mean, here we're talking about the party here, but it could may well be the, the, the Salafi groups. It could yeah, be yeah, yeah, a yeah. Sufi Tariq. It could be yeah. the Ikhwan. It could, it could be every group. What I'm saying is that if you've been told or taught and you, you had conviction that mm. democracy is a system of kufr, um, that voting after being conveyed the da'wah why it's haram and to still go and persist in it is sinful, um, that working for the establishment of the khilafah upon the prophetic methodology as my jama'ah has defined it is fardal ayn once that's been informed to you. These positions, once you've yes, is that have I have no. I. Yeah, no? that was wrong. The last one was wrong. That was wrong. But anyway, that's just examples. No, no, no. But example. I, mean, I get your question, but I don't understand why. Why does it have to be a reconciliation? No, so no some things are the same. Other things you changed because your conviction changed. No, no because, you, because no, because you're having to work with people now, uh, with with other groups and other uh, brothers and sisters and thinkers and activists and mm-hmm. from different persuasions and backgrounds. You still hold on to certain of those views. But yeah, now, so, okay, okay. Now, as a solution, others may present solutions which you still deem to be haram or impermissible or or, or problematic. That's okay, but in, the, in those cases, so obviously, if someone is doing something that I think is haram, then we're not going to get very far in in working together. Okay, right? Obviously, um, but I think where there's a difference is uh, I, I've, I've come to appreciate a bit more that there are various differences in the ummah, and you you just have to approach them. With a with a broader and more open attitude, 
right? And that's not just saying, let's just be more open. Like I think fundamentally from an usuli and a fiqhi perspective, um, uh, you have to accept opinions that are valid for valid opinions. And this is not, again, not just with the heads, not just with these Islamist groups and movements. I find there can be a tendency across the, you know, da'wah spectrum and the manhaji spectrum to be a bit narrow on that point. Even though in the, in the, in the classical Islamic tradition of usul al-fiqh, it's very broad, right? Yeah. Having a semblance of evidence is not difficult uh, within certain parameters and, and rules, of course. So, so it's one thing to, I think, yeah, so where I, where I would see a change, trying to sort of think about it now on the spot, is that I think we need to be more open in sitting with people of different views and engaging in that discussion with more epistemic humility, let me put it that way, uh, which means it shouldn't be, I, I shouldn't come to the table thinking, I've got the answer, the other guy's wrong, and my, and my only objective here is to convince him. Right, that, fulfill my obligation and convince him. Well, that, Rather, happens, that happens a lot, and not only lot. not only in the party, but it happens a lot about other groups as well. You yes, come yes, with a solution. Yeah. You are right. You've come. You come to convince them. Halas, job done. Boom. Yeah, that's the thing, and I think that's that's wrong. On 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 all the issues that are done. Obviously, if it's about qatiyat and thawab, that's different. But, sure. But ninety five percent of our discussions are usually on vaniyat methodologies, how, what strategies, this, that, and on those issues. It should be the opposite. I should come. Yeah, I've, I've got a view. Confidently believe in your view. You're convinced. You discuss that. But there should be room for openness that the other person could be right. And that's the maximum, isn't it? That's the maximum that, in theory, we all of course. Uh, we, we all say that, you know, my opinion is right, uh, but with the possibility of being wrong. But it's that in practice, that possibility is not, you're not really taking it as a possibility, okay. right? If you were, there would be a bit more openness. There would be a bit more in a different, different approach, how you do those things So yes I think We need to be much more open And I hope um, and, 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 and one of the features That the Umatic Project Is um, Marked by Is a greater openness To uh, Valid opinions And ideas um, And to sit and discuss them um, But yeah If To the extent that someone Adopts an approach That I don't Then obviously we're not going to We're not going to Be able to do that together But at this stage anyway The Umatic Project is more of a it's focused on the discursive space. It's it's it's, it's focused on knowledge production, okay. not so, on lobbying or activism or, or those things. So the Omatic project. Uh, uh, let me ask you, <coughs> squarely, is it just going to be? I'm not, subhanallah, shouldn't be saying. Is it just going to be? Do we need to change the battery? Pardon? Okay, cool. Always no remember to take this bit out, yeah. So the Omatics project. Um, are, are we expecting very long, lengthy? Uh, ivory Tower academic long articles, or what are you against academics for? I'm not about. I, 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 I just. I, I, no, it's not, not. No, hold on. It's not. I'm, I'm against. But I, I'm I putting this back on you. No, you guys are our beacon of knowledge, and and mm. I benefit so much from your posts and that of others and your peers. <laughs> alhamdulillah. But sometimes but. I read them, and I think to myself, I know how that applies to my brother on road who didn't even get five HC GCSEs. I know how what Uthman just posted on Facebook will affect my brother uh, on a real life meaningful way in terms of how he survives in this world and navigates. It, it, it would affect all Muslims of all different backgrounds, but they need to understand that language. So I'm all mm. pro for easy, understandable language. Yeah, yeah. And, that's fine. Look, and, and I think if we digress from our sort of discussion just, just momentarily, I think that's a very important point to address. 
because I get this a lot. You know, your language is like this, and you're like that, and this and that, and the lay people are not going to understand it, and we simplify it. And I understand where that's coming from, but I think what people need to appreciate is it's horses for courses, to put it in simple terms, right? Like, even in, even in DAO space, so this is not just in some academic sort of, you know, ivory tower space. Even in the DAO space, it's, it's, it's a differentiated space. There are different groups in the Ummah. Right when I'm speaking to when I'm doing street dawah, on that's a, that's a particular part of dawah. But there are intellectuals, right? There are there are academics that need dawah. There are there are there are intellectual leaders. There are public intellectuals, right? So there's different people and different things. Yet if I'm speaking to a lay audience and using so who's academic the language, audience? the Omatic project. Who's the target audience then? Again, it's not one. That's the point. It's it's broad, but nevertheless, obviously, we have we've, we've, we're trying to focus um, at this stage on um, but two levels: scholars, academic scholars, intellectuals, but also at another level, people we might call sort of thought leaders, people in the Dao space, you know, movements, um, and therefore, generally, the educated readership in the Muslim community, in the Muslim mm-hmm. global Muslim community. Um, that is there, but my point is like if even away away from the Omatics project, if I want to, if I'm using the wrong language to the wrong audience, that's a problem, mm. right? It's not a problem just to use a particular uh, a particular language. So, and I, I just I'm, I just want to clarify that because I get that a lot and I understand where it's coming from, but there's a there's a presupposition that I think is wrong. There's an assumption that's wrong, which is that Dawa should always be in some very simple language. No, right. and I, if you I, do that, then you're excluding certain people, and you're not going to win them over because they require, you know, particular treatment, if you will. Let me re-clarify my position. My position is this: Wallahi, of course, there is a space for academics and higher elite level conversations that need to be had with depth and references <coughs> and deep research that needs to be had. But if you're trying to convert, I guess what I'm trying to say is when. Du'at, who also happen to be academics When they're trying to Or when they explain things Which have real life implications To the ummah right? Those things, if they are Expected to be taken with seriousness And with a level of hesitancy To either reform or change Or act upon It needs to be done in a language which is understood by the lay I guess yes. that's, oh, that's what it is I'm not saying that there is no space For the ivory towers, ivory towers are so important Um uh, <laughs> Uh, but I'm saying that there has to be a time where the towers have to come down a little. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. I'll, but I'll just qualify that a little bit. It's not. I, I don't think the criteria is when there are real life implications for the ummah for the lay people. It's when the audience is those people. Okay. Right. So, so, so the real life implications is a topic based thing. If I'm talking about the geopolitics of the Middle East and the relationship between America and now China as an ongoing power, there mm. are real life implications. True, of course, of course. But but it's a different thing to think about who am I talking to? If I'm talking to geopolitical analysts, right? Of course, or, simple language will not work. It wouldn't it be appropriate. Be, yeah, it'll be it won't be appropriate. But if I'm talking to others, to to a broad white broader audience, yes, then you have to use a different language. So so will yeah, the, the, the page. will the Omatics project have content there which will be digestible, understandable for lay folk? Yes, yes, to to a certain extent. Or would someone someone need to have a cursory understanding of modern Western philosophy and so forth? 
uh, or these kind of ideas? Look, to a certain extent, as I said, the the, the, the audience at this point is primarily uh, scholars and academics mm-hmm. and, and and also, um, as I said, uh, a second, as a second tier or at a second level, uh, the sort of educated reading masses. Uh, but you can see already the, the essays that are already published, you'll see that they're not very academic, they're not very technical essays. Um, they do require some background in the areas that they're speaking about. Sure. Uh, but that's not, that's not, um, I think they're understandable by a, a large enough audience. Right? But yeah, we do have a particular audience, a particular scope that we want to work on, uh, from which at a, at a later point, we would like to expand out. Now, ummatics is a very, inshallah, uh, ummatics is a very interesting word. It's a word that's uh, recently and commonly used to focus on matters which transcend uh, respective nation state borders or even continents for that matter. Ummatic to suggest that is something which is wide scope, far far reaching and affects uh, more than just thyself or thy household or thy community. how do you feel Omatic's project fulfills its name? Uh, but well, by addressing those big issues um, and keep and making them the, you know, the, the target that we that we're looking at. Uh, but but when we use Omatic, it's just Omatic is just the adjective form or the relational form of Ummah, right? So ethnicity, ethnic, uh, nationalistic. Ummatic sure. is—it's a reference to the ummah, of right? Course. So the idea is that we want to—we want to try and so we're, we're focusing in the discursive space on discourse, on ideas, and trying to foster an ummatic consciousness and sensibility. Let me break that down, mm. right? So we want—we want to change the discourse in a way where, well, not okay, not change. We want to further that. It's already been happening. It's been done. There's work in this space. Because part of our emphasis is not to say that we've got all the solutions and you know we figured this all out. We've got to convince the Ummah now. This is one contribution to a larger project, a okay. Ummatic project that the Ummah has evolved in. So if, right? if, but, you, if you had to go on a boat ride to discuss the Ummatic project, would you take Dr. Oemar Anjum or Dr. Yakul Ahmed? Just random, just a random one I feel like to asking. Di- to, di- to explain it? What do you mean? To discuss it? To develop it? Yeah. Um... It depends. Doctor Yakub is not fully. Uh, if if I had to explain it, yeah, <coughs> I would take Doctor Yakub. Okay. If I had to develop it further, then I would take Doctor Anjum. Let's carry on. I just he's more, he's, he's, so so. I was saying that um, the idea is to try and foster that ummatic consciousness where 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 the ummah Muslims around the world think in ummah terms, as opposed to uh, sectarian terms. Or national, okay. You know, first of all, as opposed to nationalistic terms, nation-state terms, but also, also in a more Islamic reference, as opposed to sectarian terms or even madhabi terms, right? We're relevant. It's not to say it's anti-madhab. You have to you know, start out from some angle, some school of thought. But on ummah issues, is to think on ummah terms and to feel on ummah terms, right? So you want to take those issues and you want to centralize their importance and then address them. But we want to also address them with depth, with specialists, right? In a in a in a, in a deep way, you know, in a good way, um, 
and so that we're putting our best foot forward in, in, addressing, in addressing these matters. And therefore we feel that as a first stage, if we can focus on that discourse, that can set the platform for, um, you know, developments on that in the future, inshallah. Inshallah. <clears throat> let, me, let me posit to you uh, a, a situation where maybe a subject matter which the automatic projects will address or uh, forgive me if it's something that's already been addressed. It's a, it's a question that I asked uh, your colleague and our brother, Dr. Oi Maranjum, when he was on the podcast. Uh, one of the questions I asked him was that, do you believe that whatever, whatever idea you have of what, how a caliphate may look like or mm-hmm. what you'd like it to look like or what you pray for it to look like, whether it's nostalgic or romantic or realistic based on today's states and constructs and so forth. I asked him, do you believe that the caliphate, however you may think it will manifest, can coexist in a world of nation states? Mm. Would you, I'm going to ask you the same question because we spoke about you. When I asked you, you guys will be haven't had it for a hundred years, and you you mentioned revival space. So I'm asking you, do you think the discussion of a caliphate in a meaningful way to truly understand how such a polity could even possibly exist in the current world that we know it? Can it coexist? Will it have to learn to coexist with what we know of nation states and powerful nation states? Um, I don't think it can. I think in some sense it would have to transcend the nation state paradigm. You can discuss it. So it's one thing to manifest, it's one thing to discuss. Obviously you can discuss it. So let's briefly discuss it. Do you think a, a caliphate can be a collation of or an amalgamation of, or a union of, of various Muslim nation-states? It could start off like that, as a potential option, but you would already be um, challenging some fundamental aspect of those states being nation-states. Can I quickly ask you something, because it is relevant. Do you, do you, do you believe that, inshallah, when the, the caliphate is re-established, that it will be upon the methodology of the prophethood and it would be here to kind of stay for until the end of time kind of thing. If, yes? Until the end of time? I mean, the first it, part, uh, yes, yeah. but the first part is what is indicated by the relevant hadith. Okay. But also by relevant hadith, it's not till the end of time. There will be... So, 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 given that, so, so given that, okay, let's forget about the latter bit I said. So given that, yep. do you think that multiple Muslim-majority nation-states can form under an umbrella caliphate upon what we understand to be a prophetic methodology. Yeah, they can. They can they can do that. But again, so it's it's about what you mean by these terms here. So those so the current state formations that we have fifty seven of them. Come, There's fifty seven Muslim they, majority secular All of them states. or some of them or the majority of them could come together and make a new formation, but in part part of being a new formation means you've changed in some way. Right, so that's the question. Is it just a nominal change? Is it like the OIC? Uh, that's not. The, you what, know? what about what about something like the <coughs> the European Union with the Pope as the Khalifa, something like okay, that? Okay, so that that would be a slightly more radical change, and then you'd have to look at it. Is it meeting the sort of essential requirements of a caliphate? In what ways it changes the nation state? But what I'm saying is, I don't I don't think uh, a caliphate that is genuinely a caliphate. Um, and I say that because I think there's scope. I don't think one of the differences again. I think that with with um, other um, Islamic movements is 
I don't think we can have a fully fixed model from A to Z. Here it is, and what remains is only to implement it. Sure, right? absolutely. I think we need yeah. to be a bit more open to understand historically, but I think you had that discussion with Dr. Angel in your podcast. So um, generally speaking, at a conceptual level, I don't think the caliphate and nation states can coexist. Um, but where the, the level of compromise or change mm. depends on your model of the caliphate, right? Sure. Uh, but some things are clear, like, so for example, the, in the nation state, territoriality is defined and fixed sovereignty is the state is sovereign now that's a that's a non-negotiable islamically the state cannot be the sovereign entity right uh so something's non-negotiable other things um some you know bureaucratization okay seems to be problematic the extent of the reach of the state is is problematic i think Mm. um but to what extent the forms the changes this is all open to uh, discussion and debate Uthman, I've noticed in the last two to four years, I've seen a change uh, in the way you address certain subject matters, which you may would have done so differently and more passionately in the past, right? More critically mm-hmm. in the past, more harsher in the past, I would say. Mm-hmm. There's a far more level of uh, <coughs> compassion uh, and amicability to engage those whom you differ with. Um, and I guess... Where I'm leading with this is When you look at the different methodologies that exist Of revivalist groups Right Hizb al-Tahrir, Ikhwan al-Muslimin And it's variations Wherever you go in the Arab world Or it's South Asian equivalent in Jamaati Islam uh, Whether it be the various I don't like using this term Jihadist groups Or those groups that seek to take authority And implement Islam uh, by raising arms or so forth and, 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 and everything in between yeah, That falls within the, the, the synergies And the differences within these various groups And not just restricted to those three or four But even beyond that Given this kind of melting pot Of movements, ideas, methodologies As a result of a particular Sociopolitical reality that the Ummah finds itself in And has been for the last 100 to 150 years how do you navigate around that? As Uthman Badr in 2021, how do you now engage with those Muslims who come from that background who have no overt issue from a dini point of view, from a fiqhi point of view, from a methodological point of view, or with democracy, or a religious or political pluralism, or power sharing with those whom we know will implement very un-Islamic laws, right? Or those who believe that fighting some of the regimes is absolutely justified. That these guys are actually Tawhut and Tawarit and false deities and they deserve to be fought because they're actively without um, without duress or anything are choosing to rule by other than what Allah has revealed. Uh, and all the other variations, including the, I would even say, yes, including the, the Hamza Yusuf Time where you have to engage with the rulers that we we've got, um, and 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 to rebel against these guys would be would be an even greater sin, and so therefore deal with the tyrants that we have and give them nasiya. How do you navigate around this melting pot of different ideas and methodologies for revival? Um, where you, where you would have done in the past far more critically and harsher. I would I would imagine. Yeah, I'm not sure it's too much of a difference. Um, 
because even I mean I think there is a difference overall, but even within you know it, within a particular group, people have their own um, a group or a movement or a man has people. Not every individual is the same. They have their own inclinations, idiosyncrasies, styles, approaches. Uh, but yes, I think there is probably some change, some learning. I feel that um, it's not that. I mean, I still believe that uh, fighting is not the way. Going sort of stealthily into parliament and trying to show that is not the way, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, but I think, generally speaking, you need a more automatic approach where you first of all approach these other Muslims as believers, as sincere believers, as wanting the best for the Ummah, uh, as people who should engage in discussion in the way that I described earlier, um, and, and 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 not sort of. I think there's a there's a negative approach where someone goes to parliament, so I go, well, he's, he's joined the kufr system, uh, that's against the interest of the ummah, he's a sell-out. Right? I think that's a very negative approach, but this is what I'm saying, that I'm not sure the change is too significant because I, even in my many years in HC, I always found that approach wrong. And I think generally speaking, okay, so, avo- avoid that approach. So let's talk right? about let's talk about an approach which uh, many of the shabab and, and and it's a it's a conversation point where we have to engage our brothers from different uh, and sisters from different backgrounds and persuasions, and that is to perhaps address issues like Erdogan and the Ak Party or Imran Khan and PTI or uh, right. Dr. Muhammad Mursi rahimahullah uh, and his <coughs> very very brief and unfortunate tenure as the as the democratically elected president of Egypt and. Mm. These kind of more kind of I hate these terms, but you know, pro democracy Islamists and and you know these kind of movements and and realities. Let's forget about the the MPs that we're voting in, in in the West. Let's talk more about the actual Islamic groups and parties. Some have attained power. Some are still relatively in power. Others have failed and been put down very violently and unjustly. I'm talking about those. Yeah, I'm realities. talking about those as well. I'm not talking. I'm not talking about like uh, what's that Mayor's name in in London. Yeah, I'm talking about uh, the London Mayor. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I'm talking. This is what I'm talking about. Like, sincere Muslims who who haven't have some automatic sense. That's why they're in the Dawah space. That's why they're doing this work, right? Mm. Um, and so we, we we ought to treat them with that in mind, right? Um, so that's how that's how I would navigate it, right? There has to be a bit more epistemic humility, a bit more openness. Um, but nevertheless, the other the other question of navigation is what do you do? In the end, you can't sort of take a bit from here and take a bit from there and make some sort of soup. You're gonna have to choose something. You're gonna have to do something concrete. But right? I guess what I'm asking is that you, as an individual, uh, as an activist, as a da'i, as a Muslim, as an academic, you would have certain ideas, a certain viewpoints, a certain positions, right? Yeah. And f- fundamentally, some of these positions would be grounded on the fact that you deem it to be. The correct thing Islamically yeah. The most yeah. beneficial thing to Islam and Muslims Today yeah. And then you are now having to work From an ummatic point of view With others who don't have positions like that And that you would actually in fact think Those, those positions are actually problematic I Yes that's those, true Yeah uh, so, so so Again there's, uh, there's I think we should differentiate between sort of engagement And working with uh, Working with will require not hundred percent carbon copies, yeah, but some proximity. Okay, at least proximity in fundamentals, right? Cool. Uh, for, to work with, you need proximity in your positions on the fundamentals, at least. 
But engagement generally, you don't need that, right? You can still have a healthy, automatic engagement with other Muslims, regardless of how close or far they are in terms of what you believe is correct and what they believe is correct. Mm. So I think I think that's the way to go about it, and um, it's really it's it's more of a, that's more of an attitudinal change than than any sort of concrete way different way of doing things. But I think it's extremely important, particularly, and this goes back to even the culture war debates that we spoke about. I think we, a lot of times the ummah, whether manhaji debates, culture war debates, whatever they be, we can have a tendency to fall into a sort of factional approach, a tribalistic discourse. Mm. I think that's very negative. It's very problematic. Um, we need to try and avoid that and, and aim for a much more ummatic, uh, you know, cooperative, warm discussion. Bring it, inshallah, bringing the podcast to a close um, I'm going to ask you something Which I know many Muslims Many Muslims, especially youth They have been told a version of Islamic history They've been told uh, stories naturally from Not just the seerah, from Islamic history To obviously uplift the morale To give us hope of great generals And great leaders and revivalists and so forth is it wrong, is it problematic for Muslims today to think that a civilization existed from Morocco to Indonesia to as north as the Caucasus and to as south as Tanzania, that as Islamic civilization existed in that breadth, um, relatively unharmed and untouched and untainted generally uh, by the ills of of. of, of uh, what we deem to be un-Islamic ideas and ideologies that we have today, would it be would it be incorrect and inaccurate to to think that such a reality or civilization existed? Or is well, that I, don't think a, it, I, don't, I don't think it would, but it's about some of the, the, latter, the latter part there. You said obviously in the, if it was in the past, it wasn't going to be affected by the ideologies that were there today. It would be more whether it was tainted by the 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 ideologies of their times, which I think they were. So. Uh, it, uh, it, there is, I think there is a need to be a little bit more nuanced and qualified um, about those realities. I don't think there's a problem with saying that there was a very expansive Islamic um, civilization, polity, caliphate, whatever. Uh, but I think in the, the fruits of it, the results and how things were, sometimes the um, image is, is not as accurate as it was. And it's sort of embellished. Okay. I think, and that can be problematic. Um, but I think even if we, even if we describe it in the more accurate terms, there's still a lot there to be very uh, that that's very good to mm. that, to be proud about to be to be a model, right? Because it, it, obviously you're not going to have a utopia on Earth. It's not about comparing it with some sort of, of utopian course. model. A- absolutely. It, it's it's always relative, mm. right? It's always relative to what else was existing. What else was the thing? Um, but we know generally, following the, the, the more classical and um, model, the, the model of the Rashidun Khilafah, mm-hmm. there's always been issues, right? So anyone who tries to paint it as it was all hunky-dory is, is wrong by default. Of course. Right? But it's now about the details and how difficult and how... And I think there's a lot there to learn from. <coughs> and I think the problem with em- embellished or romanticized views is not just sort of a wrong general conception, you don't learn from the history because you, you didn't understand the problems, the difficulties, surely, and how they were. 
But surely there is a place for the story of Tariq bin Ziyad, the Muhammad bin Qasim, yeah, Sultan yeah. Fatih, and, and, Sayyid, and Sayyid Qutuz, and 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 and, and, and uh, surely there is a place at these times to lift the morale of mindset. Or do you think that a continuum? No, I, I don't think that. I think these things go together. They're not opposed to each other. Of course, there is Sayyid Qutub, Sheikh Taqid al Nabahani, Maududi. Look, these are people that arise in a very very dire situation. From an Ummah perspective, right? Yeah. The, from, from the time, post-Khilafah, the Ummah is divided, it's colonized. And then, but you get people who rise of caliber, of sacrifice, of we can, we can go on and on, right? Yeah. So it's not, it's not uh, mutually exclusive that you know, it, was a very, it was a dire situation or a difficult situation to one mm-hmm. extent or another, but you had very motivating and very positive um, aspects to that It's not So definitely we can We can do both But I, I don't think You need to Over embellish Or romanticize To do that Because then you lose Other aspects You lose a lot In terms of learning From that history And I think that's The most, the most important Part of history That we learn from it Of course uh, as, as the saying goes uh, we, don't, we don't seem to learn As human beings and, that, and I think that's what Needs to Be kept Front and centre my very last question to you, and, I, and you literally just, uh, you planted it for me so perfectly. You said, in this dire situation, the likes of Sayyid Qutb and Sheikh Taqidin of Hanim, Allah have mercy on them both and all the others, I mean, that they came in a very dire situation. Do you believe the last century or so is a dire chapter in the Ummah's history? Yeah, I think it's probably the most difficult, the single most difficult. It's very, very interesting because when I asked Dr. Waymar Anjum, Someone who you're going to be working alongside with or, or are currently working alongside with I said, <clears throat> do you believe it to be one of the worst chapters in, in Islamic history? He goes, absolutely not He goes, I believe it to be perhaps one of the most There's other ways to look at it And he referred to the number of Muslims The 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 manifestation of Masajid The Muslims worshipping and giving da'wah around but did the it give world you, But did it give you another period the, in history that was worse? The, the, the accessibility to Islamic knowledge and access to yeah. and he, he gave I agree with that I agree with that. Yes. So, but, but there's a difference here. So he's right in saying there's different ways to look at it. No, then I countered it. I said to him, but what about the number of death and oppression and, mm. and injustice and, and the situation of the Uyghurs and the Kashmiris and the Palestinians? He said, well, in terms of a numerical point of view, there's more Muslims. So naturally, more Muslims will die and be oppressed in the same way that more Muslims are coming. I just find it interesting because this is exactly what I meant. When you talk about Ummatic's project, and the likes mm. of Dr. Uthman Badr having to work with the likes of Dr. Weimar Anjum having to work with the likes of others that you're going to have to deal with people who on the one hand see a dire situation and others who don't see Nestor as a dire yeah, situation Yeah, that's fine, that's fine As I said, it's not going to be a carbon copy There are differences mm. You will see various things differently mm. Right? But as I said on some fundamentals there will be proximity yeah. even, though I'm not, even though I'm not saying carbon copy Mm. I'm saying proximity They'll be close And there'll be differences However I don't think this is The point of difference I, I, I think just, uh, I think uh, no. the current time Is probably the single Most dire That doesn't mean It's not a time Of great opportunity And a time And and, and more so The current time Is different from Taking about the last 100 years As a whole sure. Right sure. So if you talk about The last 20, 30, 40 years There's a lot to talk about In terms of revival And people doing this And Muslims doing that And opportunity And so on and so forth which I would agree with 100%, but your basic point remains, uh, there will be different outlooks, 
and we have to try and do our best to 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 work with that. And I really, I think that's one of the challenges. One of the challenge. It's part of the human fitra to look at things differently, difference of opinion. Mm. But it's it's part of the shari'i ethos. I will say that Muslims should work towards collective work, right? So now there's a there's a tension, mm. difference, but collective work. How do you sure, do it? Got it. Yeah, right. Go. So you have we have to work out uh, how to do that. And I think the way one way to do that is to be more uh, specific or, or you know sensitive to which differences are more you can't compromise on are more fundamental and which ones are more branchial and therefore you can you know there's more room for them Uthman Bhai Jazakumullah khair for your time bro I thoroughly enjoyed having you on and apologies if I said anything to her to offend you or came across disrespectful but it was a great nah, honor nah, to have nah. you on bro Jazakallah khair, it was a good conversation And uh, you're going to have to try a lot harder if you want to offend me <laughs> um, <laughs> no. Obviously that wasn't your intention No, no it wasn't so, my intention uh, man. It was a good discussion Jazakallah Alhamdulillah. khair no, no. Barakallah Brothers and sisters uh, I hope you enjoyed uh, today's podcast as much as I did There was a lot that was discussed There was a lot uh, which inevitably uh, Uthman and, and myself We couldn't do justice to or give depth to Because there's entire uh, There's entire terms uh, to study some of the things that we spoke about People invest years To understand and make sense of the, some of the topics That we spoke about uh, With uh, Uthman today So there was no way that today's conversation Was ever going to have that kind of deep academic depth Because quite frankly some of these subject matters We can't do justice to them even in a 10 hour conversation Would you agree Uthman Bhai? Yeah Yeah so we, we we skimmed across a lot of topics I'm saying this because I know a lot of people in the comment section will say Well you didn't speak about this enough and long enough It's because a lot of these subject matters There's entire books and series and volumes and uh, Dedicated to these subject matters uh, And the audience uh, today And the audience today, back to my yes. point The audience today is a very broad absolutely. audience So I want to cater for that No, no, alhamdulillah, um, so alhamdulillah. Please, I was, and I've never done this before And this is this is like a little tribute I'm giving to Uthman Bai. Uh, never have I concluded a podcast with a contribution uh, from our guests, uh, but today's podcast will include uh, with a 10-minute speech or a defense, which uh, Uthman Bai did. Uh, you can't do that. We're already one and a half hours in, brother. No, no, but I want to conclude with it because I think it's going to be, I think it will be of great benefit to our viewers and listeners uh, yeah, to sure. listen to that defense. When was that given? In 2014? 13 I think And it was in like the Charlie Hebdo issue wasn't it I don't even remember Because there's been so many different episodes of Okay of, of, of those insults Well anyway Five Pillars fully milked it We got about 150, 200,000 views from that video yeah I got, And I got, I got no uh, what's it, royalties either <laughs> <laughs> anyway, brothers and sisters, uh, listen to this address, listen to this presentation, uh, try and make sense of it, and inshallah, you know, uh, in, uh, understand it, and inshallah, convey it if and when uh, a conversation about defending Allah, the honor of Allah and His uh, prophets ever arises. Brothers and sisters, remember to subscribe to the Five Pillars YouTube channel, remember to subscribe to all our podcast audio platforms uh, Apple, Google. Uh, all the other major platforms You'll find us there Keep us in your du'as And until next time Assalamu alaikum Wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh Good afternoon ladies and gentlemen Chair, opposition I begin in the name of Allah In the name of God Most gracious, most merciful God and his prophets Should be protected from insult This proposition Indeed This entire debate 
is built on the premise of free speech, on the understanding that free speech is the starting point and that what remains is to debate its limits. But I reject this premise. Free speech is a liberal position. It is an, is it an, it is an ideological liberal position, not some neutral universal. So here's a frank memo to the liberals. Enough of the self-indulgence. You don't represent the default position. Billions of people around the world are not liberals. Stop feigning universality. Don't drop the pretense and let's have an honest discussion. It is of the most basic human civility to respect others. That is the starting point, not free speech. To insult others is to treat them with gross insensitivity, insolence or contemptuous rudeness. Those who want to allow this, the onus is on them, surely, to prove that such depravity should be allowed. The idea of free speech is flawed in theory and politicized in practice. It is an idea impossible to implement, not implemented anywhere historically, nor even today, not even in liberal democracies. In justifying, for instance, as acceptable, the most recent insulting film of the Prophet, peace be upon him, the White House said, we cannot and will not squelch freedom of expression in this country. Then Secretary of State Hillary Clinton noted, our country does have a long tradition of free expression. We do not stop individual citizens from expressing their views. Of course, leaders in Australia and Europe have said similar. Yet this is simply not true. Free speech does not exist anywhere in absolute form. There is no absolute freedom to insult. We have defamation laws, sedition laws, professional standards, journalistic standards about reporting about celebrities and politicians. In Germany, denial of the Holocaust is, is prohibited by law. In, in the UK, the Public Order Act makes, quote, threatening, abusive, or insulting words an offence. In Australia, the Commonwealth Criminal Code uh, makes it an offence for a person to use a postal or similar service in a way that, a re that reasonable persons would regard as offensive. As for in practice, Azhar Ahmed in the UK was convicted just last year for grossly offensive communications. He had commented on Facebook that British soldiers in Afghanistan should die and go to hell. In Australia, a Muslim man was convicted just a few months ago for letters deemed offensive which he sent to the families of dead Australian soldiers under the above-mentioned criminal code provision. These are but two of many examples that may be cited. Free speech, we may surmise, is used as a political tool yielded selectively. Who decides about when and how to qualify free speech? Who decides when the sword is to be yielded? This is not about freedom. This is about how far power can go. It's about using power. It's about power using the notion of freedom to extend and enforce itself. Ultra-liberals may say here, look, we disagree with all these laws, with all these cases, and we affirm freedom of speech, unqualified, carte blanche. But is such a position really conducive to society? Would we accept white people using the N-word against blacks or a person shouting fire in a theatre such as ours? 
or a student insulting his teacher, a child their parent. Everyone, all of us teach their kids to respect others, not to insult. Why? We can't have it both ways. Some forget, perhaps, that even in the Western tradition, free speech was upheld as a most basic value for specific ends, to allow profession of ideas, inquiry into truths, and the ability to account government. Does any of these noble ends, which all of which Islam demands, I hasten to add, require the freedom to insult? Or does insult, in fact, defeat their very purpose? This is not about free speech, nor is it, nor is it about just insults. Let's be honest. Let's be very honest with each other. The reason this debate is taking place is because secular liberalism imposed itself on both East and West by stealth. It dominated not by the strength of its values, but by the strength of its militaries. The Muslim world resisted and continues to do so, unlike Christianity and Judaism, which crumbled under the force of secularism, Islam did not. Lands were divided and colonized, conquered and exploited. The Islamic state, the caliphate was dismantled, but the Islamic mind remained, so the resistance remained. It is the quest to break this resistance in which these insults come. The quest to impose secular liberalism, to consolidate the victory eternally, to agitate and provoke, to add insult to injury, to kick a man when he's down. There's no glory in that. There is no glory in that. And there's no glory in asking people to accept that. The free world seeks to dominate and impose, to extend its power, exploit others and perpetuate its military, political and epistemic violence, perpetuating orientalist fantasies about Muslims being prone to violence, backward, unable to manage themselves in order to justify intervention from propping up dictators like Mubarak and King Abdullah to destroying entire countries through war and invasion, Iraq, Afghanistan, to unmanned drones, killing little girls by bombing their homes on top of them, and on and on. Is the Western world really in a position to lecture others about violence or about values? Really? It is this broader context of provocation in which global Muslim reaction to insults come. It is here that our focus should be. As for critique, as apart from insult, then bring it on, honestly. Let me be very clear that stifling of serious debate is unacceptable. It's unacceptable in Islam. Critique of any ideas or beliefs is kosher. It's halal. It's allowed. Insults of any beliefs or people is not. Critique Islam all you want. Write in intellectual tones about why it is not the truth, about why the prophet is not a prophet, etc., etc. Such books fill the bookstores in the West as it is. Go to one of your local best-selling bookstores and you'll see these books. None of them have ever resulted in a riot. But to mock, to denigrate, to provoke, to agitate, that is something else. And that is unacceptable. For all people have red lines. All worldviews and cultures are sensitive with, what, with respect to what they hold dear. In Australian culture, for instance, Jesus, peace be upon him, may have become fair game, but the Anzacs are not. Modernity did not do away with sanctities. It merely shifted them from the religious to the worldly. To conclude, insult is not an acceptable mode of interaction for mature, self-respecting people. 
It is the modus operandi of the pseudo-intellectual with nothing to offer, no intent to engage, only projecting their own insecurities onto others. Insult offers nothing to society except hate and divisiveness. It is not required for the pursuit of truth, for open inquiry, for accounting governments, and nor does it allow for a cohesive society. It is unacceptable. All beliefs and sanctities, all should be protected from insult, including that which is most sacred to billions around the world, God and his prophets, peace be upon them all. This should be done in our present context by the elevation of values, not the imposition of law. Let me be clear about that. You cannot regulate civility. You cannot force people to be respectful. This is about elevating the human condition, reviving the sacred and the most basic of human decency, excavated by secular liberalism in the most hideous of ways. The fact that we're even still having this debate, to be entirely frank, is the ultimate insult. Thank you. Blood Brothers Podcast, a five-headed production.